Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Happy Veterans Day, whining about history fans. This is another episode of Whining About History, the women's history podcast where two longtime gal pals talk about women you've probably never heard of. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you so much for joining us today. Hopefully, I'm enjoying my day off and me and Jared (laughs) are enjoying some Veterans Day deals and visiting Kelly (laughs) after she has her surgery. Oh my god! I can't believe it's here. I know. Are you excited? I don't know. I'm like on the fence. I've never had surgery before, so you know, there's like that part that's like, oh god. But I'm excited. I think on the whole, it's like 95 percent excited, five percent nervous. And I know you didn't want me to share this, but history fans, you know what would make Kelly feel really good during her post-op recovery? If you left a five-star review for Whining About History wherever you listen. Wish Kelly good wishes and wellness and tell us about how much you love the podcast. Please, five stars wherever you listen. It's for Kelly's health. It is. Yeah. It It would help my recovery. Support women's health. We need it. (laughs) We have crap insurance. And we can't afford fruit and vegetables. So help That's us. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Kelly, you picked our wine this week. Okay, so actually Justin picked this like oh, a while ago. We have a guest pick. We have a guest pick from my husband. He I think couldn't he picked pick- it probably because of his brother. But so the wine label is like a periodic chart. Periodic square. table. Periodic element. square element and it's a cs because it's a cabernet sauvignon and it's by substance or wines of substance washington state and it has nothing on the back (laughs) it doesn't need anything on the back Um, science doesn't need to explain itself to us it's very cool i really like it so it's a 2017 and i mean we've had cab sauvs before i think the dragon girl was a cabernet sauvignon yeah so they're very dry this one is not any different this one's i would say actually a little bit more bitter than girl and dragon or whatever the other one was yeah that's good yeah. that's it that's all you get for the wine this time we're not wine experts you know what Let's let try. us know what you think seriously so like in our last episode we had a moscato and kelly and i are both very sparkly fruity wine gals i almost never have two glasses that wine is gone it is lost to the ages and the lining of my stomach holy shit did you finish that I didn't even notice that last time. Don't you wine shame me. I'm not. I am not. It was a good wine. We have a wine podcast. So you don't get to go. I was you actually like, all the I wine? was really hoping you didn't finish it because then I could just secretly finish it. Here's the thing. I looked at it. It looked like it still had wine in it. So I grabbed the bottle and like one drop came out and I cried while you were in the bathroom. Oh, so we're recording two episodes in a row. So that's why we're like discussing it's probably a good thing we're having more of a bitter red wine because now we won't finish off two bottles in one night (laughs) nope so kelly what should we cheers to um a good surgery a good surgery cheers oh actually as my grandmother always said to good health and she lived to be 95 that's true damn straight yeah it's very dry it's very bitter that's very stark contrast to the last wine we did. Yeah. We're both kind of over here like, Egh. I miss that electro I know, Moscato. Right? I should have gotten more Moscato. All the Moscato. 
All right, Kelly. It'll just be like six more, like six weeks of all whites <laughs> after this. So we drink so much red for Halloween and just in general recently. We've drank a fuck ton of reds. I think I think it's because we like we know we like whites, so we're trying to like branch out, and it's not going super well. Branch out, like no. vine, grapevines, yeah. branch. Out. We're vining out. Do you get it? I do, do you get it? It's just not that funny. <laughs> But so when I went to the wine store, I was like, I am so fucking sick of bitter reds. I want something juicy and chuggable. See, and I bought this at like the beginning of Halloween. So I didn't know we were going to go through so many reds. Yes, It's not our fault that so many Halloween themed wines are reds. Kind of makes sense. We should have known though. Yeah, right. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. We'll just have to find like fruity reds next year. I almost picked up a bottle of like three dollar flip flop Moscato because I was just like, I just need Fuck something I just need cheap something. and fruity. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm I'm glad you I mean flip flop Moscato's good. Is that actually what it's called? It's called flip flop Moscato. Okay, There's barefoot. That's what I'm thinking of. But there is flip flop and it's three ninety nine. But I'm glad you went with the electric because that was real good. Okay. All right, are we ready? Are we ready for me? Let us dive into some herstory. So I'm covering Francis Arnold, who's actually a modern-day herstory hero. Ooh! Like, please don't sue me, modern. Like, she is definitely still alive because she just won the Nobel Prize last year. Oh my God! So spoilers. One hundred percent alive. <laughs> Um, by the she, airing of this episode, like she's not, and we're just a bunch of assholes. I would, that would be. I would be like Emily. You can't publish this episode. <laughs> we have to wait a respectable amount of time and re-record the first half. Right. So Frances Arnold is the daughter of Josephine Inman and nuclear physicist William Howard Arnold. Ooh. She's also the granddaughter of Lieutenant General William Howard Arnold. She grew up in Pittsburgh of the suburb in the suburb of Edgewood. See, this isn't good because now I'm like two and a half glasses in <laughs> so sorry in advance so she graduated from the city's taylor alderdice high school in 1974 and as a high schooler she hitchhiked to washington dc to protest the vietnam war oh my god and lived on her own working as a cocktail waitress in a local jazz club and a cab driver we should have coordinated our stories a little better it's fine it's fine it's veterans day it's, it's fine. veterans day um, Frances Arnold graduated in 1979 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering from Princeton University. Damn! She focused on solar energy research, and in the course of her degree, she also took classes in economics, Russian, Italian, and she envisions, envisioned, I guess, herself as becoming a diplomat or CEO. Good grief, girl. Right. Get it. Get all of it. Um, during her years at Princeton, she did take a year off to travel to Italy. She worked there. She worked in a factory that made nuclear reactor parts. I'm sorry. What? Yep. That was her college job. She took a year off from college. Yeah, but still. And went to Italy and worked on nuclear reactors. She's a 20-some-year-old who's like, I'm going to take a year off of school in Princeton and then go and build nuclear reactors. And then she returned to complete her studies. But it's great because I speak Italian, so it's really no big deal. Right. Um, Once she got back to Princeton, she began studying um, with the Princeton Center for Energy and Environmental Studies, which makes sense. They're a group of scientists and engineers that at the time was read by... was led by Robert Sokolow, um, and they worked 
the group worked together to develop sustainable energy sources, which is a topic that's going to become a key focus later in Francis's life. Okay. Just put that away in the vault. Just Save it for vault. later. Save it for later. Put it in your pocket. She graduated from Princeton in, in 1979 and worked as an engineer in South Korea and Brazil and at Colorado Solar Energy Research Institute. Jeez. I know. She's just been all over. I know. Like, here's the thing. I would be terrified to move to the cities. I thought about it. I was like, <laughs> no, that's too much. But I, know, she's I like, remember. You were like, we had deep discussions about it because I was like, you can't leave me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying I stayed for you, but I kind of stayed for you. It's good. Well, now we have this podcast. Exactly. It all worked out. So while she worked at the Solar Energy Research Institute, which is now known as the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, she worked on designing solar energy facilities. Just stop drinking it. I just had like a really, I had the tiniest sip of that wine and it made me start like twitching. she's over there like twitching. So she worked on designing solar energy facilities for remote locations. And she helped write um, United Nations position papers. So she's getting her sh- name out there. Is So UN position papers, are those like, no this is how the UN feels about renew- renewable energy? That's my guess, okay. but I didn't look into it. Francis, hit us up. Right? Tell Let us, us what know. that is. Educate <laughs> um, us, please. She, she then enrolled in the University of California, Berkeley. Dang. Yeah. Um, where she earned her PhD in chemical engineering in 1985. I was, still wasn't even born yet. And became deeply interested in biochemistry in the process. Do, do you understand why my wine and my women go together now? Yes. Her thesis work carried out in the lab in the lab of Harvey Warren Blanche investigated affinity cr- chrom- affinity chromatography. Affinity cr- chromatography. 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 We'll which is, as I Google it. <laughs> Um, it's a method of separating biochemical mixture based on highly specific interaction between antigen and antibody, enzyme and substrate, receptor and ligand, or protein and nucleic acid. Is there any chance you can explain that to me like I'm five years old? Um, it is a, t- is a laboratory technique used for purifying biological molecules within a mixture by exploiting molecular properties. Very Maybe not cool. five, but that's like high school education. Okay. Okay. I can, I get the general idea. That's all we need. That's all we need. Right. Anyone who can really appreciate what she's doing is super on board and they're loving this. Right. After earning her PhD, Francis completed a postdoctoral research in biophysical chemistry at Berkeley. It's all up in that Berkeley. Uh, in 1986, she joined the California Institute of Technology as a visiting associate. She was then promoted to assistant professor in 1986, associate professor in 1992, and full professor in 1996. So she's, by the time we're yep. five, she's queen of science. Yeah. She was named the Dick and Barbara Dickinson Professor of Chemical Engineering, Bioengineering, and biochemistry in 2000 and her current position the linus pauling professor of chemical engineering bioengineering and and biochemistry in 2017 in 2013 she was also appointed the director of caltech's donna and benjamin m bioengineering center she's like a lot of long titles she's like the ultimate stem lady and here's the thing i bet when you meet her she's like hello i'm francis arnold and then lists off all of her distinctions hold on a second (laughs) I got a list. Dr. Frances Arnold, Queen of STEM, Ultimate Science Lady, Bachelor Associate, Goddess, 
of science and biophysical theoretical chemistry and renewable energy. (laughs) (laughs) One sec. She also she's also served on the board of science for the Santa Fe Institute. Um, she's been a member of the advisory board of the Joint Bioenergy Institute and the Packard Fellowship in Science and Engineering. She currently serves on the president's advisory council of the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. Deep, deep breaths. And she is also currently serving as a judge for the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. She's worked with the National Academy of Sciences, Science and Entertainment Exchange to help Hollywood screenwriters accurately portray science. Oh, my God. I love that. Yeah, that's actually cool. Speed would have never happened had she been in charge. It would have been realistic and better. (laughs) Right. She is also a co-inventor of over 40 U.S. patents. She co-founded Jivo Inc., which is a company that makes fuels and chemicals for renewable resources. She founded that in 2005. Or co- co-founded. How have I never heard of this? In 2013, she and her two former students, Peter Meinhold and Pedro Coho, fa- co-founded a company called Previvo, Previvi, Provivi, Provivi, to research alternatives to pesticides for crop protection. That's amazing. She has been on the corporate board of the genomics company Illumina Inc. since 2016. So she's still like out there all doing all this stuff. My God, who has the time? So now we're going to get more directly into her research, hopefully in a way that me and Emily can understand. Frances Arnold is credited with pioneering the use of directed evolution to create enzymes, which is a biochemical molecule, often a protein that catalyzes or speeds up chemical reactions. Okay. See, there we go. (laughs) The dumbed down version. Enzymes make things go fast. Sweet. With improved and or novel novel functions. The directed evolution strategy involves iterative rounds of mutagenesis and screening for proteins with improved functions, and it has been useful in it has been used to create useful biological systems. So basically they're saying like they look for mutations or advanced proteins that are like what they want essentially. Basically it's like chemistry eugenics is how I understand it. So it's it's almost like forced evolution might be too salacious of a thing to say, but like... But kind of. But, you know, picking picking mutations that support the desired outcome? Yep. Okay. Yep. So in nature, evolution by natural selection can lead to proteins well-suited to carry out biological tasks, but natural selection can only act on existing sequence variations and typically occur over a long period of time. Francis speeds up the process by introducing mutations in the underlying sequences of proteins. She then tests these mutations' effects. If a mutation improves the protein's function, she can keep iterating the process to optimize it further. This strategy has broad implications because it can be used to design proteins for a wide variety of applications. So it is like forced evolution. It is. Maybe I wasn't not just forced. Maybe it's like choice evolution. Guided evolution. Yeah. We're getting into some serious territory. So, for example, she has used direct directed evolution. That's what they call directed it. Directed evolution. I like she, that. She has used directed evolution to design enzymes that can be used to produce renewable fuels and f- pharmacological compounds with less harm to the environment. I want an enzyme engine. Right. So one advantage of directed evolution is that the mutations do not have to be completely random. Instead, they can be random enough to discover unexplored potential, but not so random as to be inefficient. That is 
mind-blowing. Yeah. Like, I can't even wrap my head around it. That is so... Why have I never heard of this? I know. The number of possible mutation combinations is astronomical, but instead of just randomly trying things to test as many as possible, Frances integrates her knowledge of biochemistry to narrow down the options, focusing on introducing mutations in areas of the protein that are likely to have the most positive effect on the activity that they're doing, and avoiding areas in which mutations would likely cause neutral or at worst detrimental problems like that's just i keep saying it that's incredible that's mind-blowing science is magic it is it really really is science this is straight up magic and she's just trying to make renewable fuels yep so francis has applied these methods to biofuel production for example she evolved bacteria to produce the biofuel isobutanol which can be produced by the E. coli bacteria. Oh, my God. And the production pathway requires a cofactor of NADPH, which I have no idea what that is. E. coli already makes NADH, so they just needed the P, so they were able to, it says, to circumvent this problem, Francis evolved the enzymes in the pathway to use NADH instead of NADPH, allowing for the production of the isobutanol. So basically, she's just like, okay, we already have something producing this. Technically, we need it to produce this, but we're going to work around it and make it be able to be produced using what we already have. So we could grow fuel out using, of bacteria. Yeah, basically. Oh, my God. Um, Francis has also used directed evolution to design highly specific and efficient enzymes that can be used as environmentally friendly alternatives to some industrial chemical synthesis procedures. She and others using her method have engineered enzymes that can carry out synthesis reactions more quickly with fewer byproducts and in some cases eliminating eliminating the need for hazardous heavy metals. Wow. Um, Her method has started to be adopted by some groups in pharmacology. Um, For example, one of her former students, Jeffrey Moore, and colleagues used directed evolution to evolve an enzyme to produce the diabetes drug citagliptin. Really? Yeah. So that's pretty neat. Wow. Well, because we're talking about renewable fuel, and obviously none of us are putting mutated E. coli into our gas tanks, so it's it still seems like kind of this far-off concept for me, but then to see its direct applications into diabetes medication. Right. A little bit more on her personal life. Um, she lives in California. She uh, was married to James E. Ba- Bailey, who died of cancer in 2001. Aww. They had one son named James Bailey, and Frances herself was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2005 and underwent treatment for 18 months. Oh, my God. She was married before to Andrew Lang in 1994, and they had two sons, William and Joseph. However, Lang committed suicide in 2010. Oh, jeez. And one of their sons died in an accident in 2016. Oh, no. And she's still trying to save the world. Right. Frances. Um, her, her hobbies include traveling, scuba diving, skiing, dirt biking, and hiking, which is awesome. That is amazing. So she has won many honors and awards. As I said, she won the 2018 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. She has won she won a National Academy of Engineering Draper Prize, and she is the first woman to receive that. Wow. And that was in 2011. In 2011, she also received the National Medal of Technology and Innovation. She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2011. So basically, a lot of shit happened in 2011. That was like her year. She also was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2014. She is the first woman to be elected to all three national academies in the United States. 
So the National Academy of Engineering, the National Academy of Medicine, formerly called the Institute of Medicine, and the National Academy of Sciences. Wow. So she's the first woman to be... Inducted into all three. Inducted. Okay. Again, why have I never heard of her? Um, in 2016, she was the first woman to win the Millennial Technology Prize which she won for Pioneering Directed Evolution. There we go. Uh, in 2017, she won the Raymond and Beverly Sackerly Prize in Convergence Research, which recognizes extraordinary contributions to convergence research, which I'm not sure what that is. Did I mention she was the first woman, woman to win the Millennial Technology Prize? Yes. yes she was. Okay. Um, so yeah, she won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for her work in Directed Evolution. The reason I picked her is because some of her work in directed evolution, particularly the one that specifically led to her Nobel Prize, was funded in part by the army. Really? Yeah. Because I was looking for, like, army chemists, and there's no, like, direct army chemists. There's just chemists funded by the army. Right. The army. I, I mean, it makes sense that they would want a different biofuel, you know, research. Yeah. But yeah, so they were one of her sponsors. She is the fifth woman to receive the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in its 117 years of existence. And she's the on- the first American woman. I'm trying to think of who the others would be. This is how little I well, know about women in science. I think science. Marie Curie won one. Okay. Or maybe at least honorary at some point. Because come on. Let's, I'll, I'll look this up. But I'll finish what I'm going to say and then I'll tell you. She's the first female to graduate... First female graduate of Princeton to be awarded a Nobel Prize and the first person who got their undergraduate degree from Princeton, male or female, to receive a Nobel Prize in one of the natural science categories. In all of Princeton's history, she's the first undergraduate. No, first person. Yeah, first undergraduate from Princeton to win a Nobel Prize in natural science. So that's chemistry, physics, and uh, physiology of medicine. That really surprises me. Like, if she was the first woman, I wouldn't be as surprised. But the first person ever, that's incredible. Right. Um, And then in November 2018, so just last year, she was listed as one of the BBC's top 100 women, which, hell yeah. Yeah, I want to see that. On October 24th, 2019, so literally like a week ago, (laughs) Pope Francis named her a member of the Pont... Typical Academy of Sciences. Okay, hold on. Google, I'm Googling what that is, too. No, just hold on a second. Uh, a the science, leader of the church. It's a scientific academy of Vatican City. That's what it is. So the leader of the Catholic Church. Yep, Pope Francis. Who is notoriously anti-evolution, has inducted a woman who is like... I'm fucking making, with evolution, which I'm is great. I'm making it happen. Right. Well, and that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier, because some people believe that, like, oh, no, evolution is totally real, but it was guided by an outside force. That's literally what she's doing. Right. And the church is like, I see you. I've given you the thumbs up. Yeah, that which I think is incredible. That's um, fucking trippy. I love it. Yeah. Is that what they're called? Are they called laureates? Nor- Nobel Nobel laureates. So multiple people can win a, uh, a, Nobel, a Nobel Prize, Prize in one year. She, she was the only one like in her specific thing, but there were two men that also won it the same year as her that worked on a, a product together. Nice. So I should really Google women who have <laughs> the Nobel Prize because I didn't look this up. But yeah, so that's uh, Frances Arnold, and I think she's a fucking badass. I'm disgusted that I haven't heard more about her. And maybe it's because 
I'm sure most people are like me, where we struggle to wrap our heads around exactly what she's doing. Right. But still, like... But yeah, like, this is... Most of her big accomplishments are within our lifetime, and I've never heard of her. Yeah. Which makes me really depressed. Here's the thing. Tesla cars are pretty cool, but growing your own fuel out of E. coli, is that is next way better. level witchcraft. Okay. So here's the women that have won the chemistry Nobel Prize. So okay. Marie Curie. Figured. Irene Curie. Is that like her... I have no idea. Daughter? Um, and Irene Curie shared it with a guy. Her husband, it looks like. Okay. Um, Dorothy Crawford Hodgkin. And then Ada E. Yonath. And then Frances Arnold. And then Frances Arnold was the first American woman, you yep, said? because okay. it was... Marie Curie counted for Poland and France, apparently. That's because she's she's a naturalized I know, French it's citizen. It's very interesting that they put both. But she was born in Poland. Um... So Poland and France, and then Irene Curie was France. Dorothy Hodgkin was from the United Kingdom, and Ada Yonath is from Israel. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's insane. But if you somehow hear this, Francis, just know we love you, and we think you're amazing, and we're really sad that we haven't heard about you until now. Yeah, I'm definitely going to like set my Google alerts to hear more about you. because <laughs> Let is... me know when she does more badass stuff, because we know she will. Let me know when I can fill up my tank with some E. coli fuel. Right? I totally would. I just wouldn't want to touch it. Because <laughs> you touch gasoline all the time. Like leaks sometimes. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so she's only like 63 old, 63 years old right now. Sorry for calling out your age, but so like it's Googleable. She's 100% still going to do a whole bunch of shit. She's just getting started. Man, she, I think I think uh she deserves a living legend cheers. Oh, fuck yeah. Francis Arnold, Dr. Francis Francis Arnold, goddess of STEM. Goddess of STEM. You can add that to your Wikipedia titles. Yes. <laughs> it's so bad like it's not the I, I don't think it's the wine itself i think it's one we just had a super fruity wine and two we've drank nothing but reds for the last like month this here's the thing this stuff is bitter and there's no accounting for taste but i think it's a little overpowering for kelly and i especially because we're not eating anything with it i always feel like yeah, reds, i haven't even eaten dinner reds are better with like a steak or a burger all right well we turn we didn't um, plan for this to be like a Veterans Day special episode, but since I have a bunch of veterans in my life, I'm fucking doing a veteran. Oh, yeah. That's my choice. So I am covering- If I could have found like an army chemist that was like a veteran, I would have, but I didn't. And I found this lady instead and I was like, no, she has to be covered and it has to be now. Yes, please. Because every day I didn't know about her, I was a worse person. You were. I'm sorry. I was. I'm going to be so much better now. I'm going to be stable and I'm going to be confident and I'm going to cry less. Yep. All right. So I am covering Elsie Ott. Okay. Elsie Ott was born in 1913 in Smithtown, New York. As far as I can tell, she had an average childhood, or at least there was nothing of note that anyone bothered to write down. <laughs> Elsie graduated from high school and took a bite out of the Big Apple, attending Lenox Hale Hospital School of Nursing in New oh, York City. Nice. Elsie would work as a nurse at a variety of hospitals before, in September of 1941, she joined over 59,000 others in the Army Nurse Corps. 
savvy history buffs will recognize this as being during World War II. Mm -hmm. She was stationed in Louisiana and Virginia before Second Lieutenant Elsie Ott made her way to Karachi, India. And I looked it up. That is how you pronounce it. (laughs) That's where our story really begins. During World War II, nurses were closer to the front lines than ever, often serving in field hospitals under fire. Nurses not working in field hospitals were treating wounded on ships, trains, and even planes. This sounds very familiar. This does sound familiar. I'm kind of, in my Sharon Lane story, I got into the role of nursing in the Vietnam War, and in this I get a little bit into the role of nursing in World War II. And I really like that, so I'm okay with it. Well, and here's the other thing. I had a really hard time finding information on Elsie, so I was also trying to fill it out and give it some context, which is a shame because the story is amazing. So most of this episode is me talking. (laughs) Yeah, but that's okay. We love you. These transports served as important links to the chain of evacuation, which was meant to get critically injured and ill patients to safe areas for treatment. Okay. Unfortunately, trains and ships... Trains and slips were slow. I have a podcast. I don't know how to talk. It's fine. It's fine. You're leaving that in. Yes. But trains and ships were slow as shit and had limited avenues for travel. Because... Obviously. You blow up one set of tracks... And all of a sudden, that train well, right. is basically Sh- useless. Ships had to go specific ways because there were submarines and all this other shit going oh on. Oh, my God. I The idea of being on a ship at wartime is a nightmare. I mean, I don't really like the idea of being, like, stuck on a ship in general. Yeah. But, like, stuck on a ship where you're like, well, we could just, like, get blown up by a submarine and die. And no one's going to see it coming. Yeah. No one knows no, how to you. swim. Sucks. No. No thanks. Planes, on the other hand, were quick, versatile, and could bypass physical barriers. Trains, planes, and automobiles. Trains, planes, and automobiles. It's a good movie. It is. It really is. Nowadays, we think of medevacs by plane and helicopter as common, but in the 40s, they were still making strides. The first air medevac by helicopter was done during World War I in 1915, so they had only really been around for 20-some years. That's still pretty impressive. Yeah. But air medevacs were about to take the next step, and it was a big one. When Elsie arrived in India, she was chosen for a very special mission. She would be part of the first ever intercontinental air evacuation. Well, that's cool. Elsie, who had only about eight months of military experience, received notice of the mission only 20 hours before the flight was to leave, had zero air evacuation training, no transport experience, and had never even been in a plane. Nice pick there, Army. And she was chosen for this. And she's just like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And Because what else are you supposed to say at that point? Exactly. When they're like, hey, this is your next mission, are you supposed to be like... I can't. Like, you're like, no, okay, this is my next mission. So the 24 hours notice, depending... You said 20. I said 24 hours. You said 20. Well, I meant to say 24 hours. You can rewind. You said 20, because I was going to be like, man, they gave her less than a day. When I'm editing this, I'm going to have the smuggest smirk on my face when I listen to this part. (laughs) And I'm going to look at your face glaring at me and be like, ha ha, Or you're going to be like, oh... Yeah, she was right. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not putting that in the universe. But so I talked with Jared and he said, yeah, the 24 hours notice really isn't that uncommon depending on the mission. But come on. like She's only eight months in. She's never even had the right training. 
Yeah, not even for, like, the ground version of this. Right. And I'm not sure how common air travel was in the 40s, but could they have picked anyone more unprepared? She'd never even been in a plane. Right, like, there had to be at least one other person that was in her situation that had at least been on a plane. Like, pick that person. Apparently not. So, ready or not, on January 17th, 1943, Elsie boarded the plane. The journey would take a week, which was nothing compared to the alternative, a three-month-long journey by ship. Nope. I'll take the, sh- I'll take the plane that I've right? never been in. Oh, my God. The flight's ultimate destination was the Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. So, she's flying from India with a patient back to the States. Yes. Okay. Except. Just 100% checking patients plural oh what what the flight crew was comprised of elsie as an in-flight nurse and a sergeant with a medical technician background and i read in one place he also had arthritis again like there literally wasn't anyone who was maybe a little more prepared for like maybe like an actual doctor (laughs) the plane was transporting five patients with varying conditions what (laughs) i was expecting you to be like yeah there were two Five? The first two were paralyzed from the waist down. Jesus Christ. The third had tuberculosis. And the fourth had glaucoma. And then the fifth person... Okay, the glaucoma is like, okay, that's not that terrible. Yeah, but still, you're in a flying tin can with someone with TB. No. No. No, thank you. Like, why? why? Put them on a ship. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God, that might even be worse, though. Put them on a ship in a room that nobody else goes in. (laughs) So the fifth person was suffering from manic depressive psychosis. Oh my god, in a tiny, tiny tin plane. This almost sounds like the worst sitcom in the world. I wonder if they just like strapped that one down. Like, Like, no offense, but. Like the odd quintuplets. It's just batshit. None of the patients had been screened by medical professionals before the flight. Oh my god. So they might have even had other problems that no one was aware of. Right. Elsie was armed with only a bedpan, urinal, aspirin, a few other basic medical supplies like gauze, and two army cots to help care for the patients. They have five patients. Five patients. Two cots. Two medical professionals. Probably two pilots. See, I couldn't find anything about the pilots, so I'm not sure if the technician guy was flying the plane, but I really hope not. No, I would assume there's, because usually on a, if the flight's going to be that long, you'd have two pilots to yeah. try and, like, minimize stopping. And air fatigue. And- exactly. So she had, like, nothing to help like, care sorry. for people. Well, and, of course, the fucking paralyzed people are going to get the cots. Like, they can't, yeah. like, do anything else. <laughs> um... We're pulling the paralyzed card. We're getting the beds. Okay. No, you have to go lay on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. And here's the other thing. I'm not, I'm imagining like a big empty plane. Yeah, I'm kind of envisioning like nowadays when you, when like you see those, like the planes that have like the netting on the inside, like they're the transport planes for for troops. That's what I'm envisioning. But there's no way that plane back then was that big. And it didn't have any netting. That's actually something that comes up because shit's just kind of hanging out. Like you put your first aid kit down here and it might end up over there depending on how the plane moves. Yeah. Yeah. After takeoff, the plane was headed west, stopping in different cities in Saudi Arabia and Sudan to refuel. When the flight stopped again in Accra, Ghana, the crew moved the patients to a different plane, and they took on 11 additional patients. Please tell me they got more beds. 
I never read anything <laughs> about more beds. Who knows? So they have 16 patients. And, and it's still two, just the two of them? And two medical Jesus professionals Christ. to take care of them all. And these aren't just people who it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just not feeling well. These are like people who can't serve in war because they've been injured or they're sick or blind. I mean, at least so far, the five that they had, it doesn't sound like, I guess it depends on the paralyzed, the two paralyzed ones. But like, depending on how they got paralyzed, like at least they're probably stable like i mean the one guy's not mentally stable but you know what i mean like no one's blushing god <laughs> don't even you did the same thing i i'm laughing because we all do it <laughs> no one's gushing blood all over the plane right right oh, jesus christ after traveling through south america elsie and her patients finally arrived in dc after six christ. and a half days and ten thousand miles unsurprisingly probably everybody got tb (laughs) i hope not unsurprisingly elsie experienced flying fatigue brought on by the intense work sleep loss and the physical and mental demands of caring for 16 patients while traveling halfway across the world it takes a lot out of you i can barely get through my work day without being like i am exhausted (laughs) and it's all mental Elsie was acutely aware of how important this flight was and took diligent notes that could be used for future Aww. intercontinental wow, medevacs. Look at her. She is. She's so like, on I've top never done it. this shit before, but let's take notes for everybody else. Yeah. I would not have thought about that. I would have been like, why the fuck did they put me in this situation? I hate this. I hate all of it. This is so unreal. Among her list of must haves for next time were oxygen, more wound dressing supplies, Extra coffee, at a girl, pre-flight patient screenings, and extra blankets. Another one of Elsie's notes pointed out how impractical skirts were during medevacs. Yes. Because I'm, I'm sure imagining she flashed her, everybody on that plane. She, had, she was Britney Spears for six and a half days, just accidentally flashing. But um, I'm imagining her, like, crouching down, moving from patient right? to patient. Yeah. And if you look at nurses' uniforms from World War II, like, they're kind of those little pencil skirts. Maybe they have a bit of a flare, but they're not, it's like, not flowy. Easy. They're not easy to move They couldn't be and... flowy, because then you're going to get caught in the engine and, I don't know, plane You know, the engines stuff. are outside of planes. <laughs> hey, hey, it's World War II. Shit's getting real. You don't know what could happen. <laughs> I'm just saying, of all the things to think about. I don't think that's really a worry. But regardless, Elsie cared for 16 patients on an intercontinental flight during wartime in a restrictive uniform skirt. That's ridiculous. In honor for her efforts, 2nd Lieutenant Elsie Ott was awarded the United States Air Medal, becoming the medal's first female recipient. Heck yeah, Elsie! So we're getting ladies receiving medals for the first time in this episode, and I love it. Recognizing the importance of this kind of work, Army General David N. Grant helped start the first official training organization for flight nurses at Bowman Army Airfield. Yay. Elsie was ordered to attend the first four-week flight nursing course. Because... You've kind of already done this, but let's get you some real training. Everyone's like, whoa, how do you do that? And she's like, let me fucking tell ya. (laughs) Elsie earned the rank of captain as a flight nurse before she was discharged from the military in 1946. Elsie late later married and settled in Wheaton, Illinois, which has got to be the most appropriate town name in all of <laughs> Illinois, unless there's a town named Cornfield. 
And I grew up in Illinois. I can say that. And anyone who lives in Illinois knows how fucking right I am. In 1965, Elsie was chosen to christen a new type of air ambulance called the C-9 Nightingale. Honorary shout out to Florence, another Herstory hero. I I didn't know that she christened them, but I knew that they had at some, you know, launched something called the Nightingale. Yeah. And we haven't covered Florence Nightingale yet. Because she like, she's on that borderline that she's like kind of well known, but not like ridiculously well known that I'm like, do I tread into that territory? We try to cover women who we really think you probably haven't heard of. So we haven't covered like Ada Lovelace, Mary Shelley, uh, Florence Nightingale, but we might because Florence Nightingale's story is fucking awesome. Anyway, Elsie passed away in oh. 2006. Legacy. Elsie's flight not only showed the capabilities of medevacs, but was critical in improving conditions and procedures moving forward because, thank God, she took notes. Now, because women were doing their part for the war effort both overseas and in the workplaces at home, pants were already becoming more common during World War II. But I like to think Elsie's notes put another nail in the impractical skirt coffin. There is nothing wrong with skirts, but when they prevent you from doing your fucking job, why make a woman wear a skirt? Right, like, I'm fine with skirts as an option. They should not be, like, the only option. Because you're a woman, you have to wear a skirt because you have to look feminine even during wartime. No. No. The reason the story is so short, because it... This is only a page. I think this is one of the shortest stories I've ever covered. And the reason that is, is because I had a really hard time finding information on Elsie and her historic flight. Which is insane. A lot of the articles I found repeated on the same information. But if you want to learn more, there is a book available on Amazon titled Lieutenant Elsie Ott's Top Secret Mission, The World War II Flight Nurse Pioneer of Aeromedical Evacuation. (gasps) By Jeffrey S. Copeland. I'd be really interested to read this because it's a little over 200 pages, which just shows me how much of this story I am missing. Right. And I want to know. So, Herstory Wishlist. I want this book. Like, Along with all the stamps we want. And we will include a link to this book on the blog, on social media, so you can get it and then tell me everything that I missed. So that is Captain Elsie Ott, and we cheers and salute to you. And thank you so much to all of the veterans. Your contributions are more important than we could ever express. And please, if you want to show veterans that you care, don't just thank them. Don't just put a sign in your yard. Donate to your local veteran support charities. Put your money where your mouth is because we can say we appreciate our veterans all day long, but we need to back up those words with actions. Well, and also as a side note, like, yes, thank your veterans, but also be aware that not all veterans will take a thanking well. Yeah. And it's nothing against you. Veterans have very different feelings, whether it's too traumatic for them to think about it so they don't want to be thanked. I knew someone that was just like, I was just doing my duty. Don't thank me. I know. know. So my boyfriend and his brother are both veterans and they have really mixed feelings on being thanked. And for the most part, they're not big fans of it, especially they both suffer from PTSD and they don't like feeling singled out. Well, no, because it's like they know people that didn't survive. They may have killed people like... So I'm not saying don't thank your veterans because veterans deserve to be thanked. I'm just saying that if you thank a veteran and they don't react positively to it, 
do not get mad at them. Like, there is, you have to realize the burden they carry as a veteran. Yeah, and here's the thing. Veterans are not one person. Everyone has different feelings about it. So, like I said, donate to your local veterans charities. Keep that within your community because veterans need support and they are not getting it, okay? Or if you have sway in a company somewhere, you know, do something special for veterans. Like, I know people do, like, haircuts and you know, free meals and, you know, like... Veterans discounts. Right. There's so many things that you can do to help a veteran. You can volunteer. You can donate money. I mean, you can write to your Congress people about legislation that will help protect veterans. Yes. Especially since I know there's some out there right now about veterans' medical situations. Yes. Anyway, thank you to our veterans. Thank you to our female veterans. This is a women's history podcast. You ladies get a special shout out. And thank you to you, Kelly, for doing this podcast with me. And thank you to you, Emily, for dealing with me. Well, I feel like we've covered what we're thankful for. Yes. We're thankful for each other and our veterans. And I'm very thankful for the veterans in my life personally. And I don't really have. Not that I'm like a terrible person, but I don't really have. Like, I'm thankful for your boyfriend. You know how you know, oh, yeah. I'm very close to Jared and, you know, the other veterans I know. But, like, I don't have a lot of, like, veterans in my life. I just realized. You're a bad person. No, I'm I am. I'm a terrible human being. <laughs> but not because of that. <laughs> There's a whole mess of other reasons. We thank you, dear listeners. Make sure you write to us, you know, if you want to tell us about the veterans in your lives. We can definitely do a follow-up episode or herstory heroes in your lives or about yourself hit us up at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com or the go check out our blog at whiningaboutherstory.com you know leave us a comment there or um we're on twitter at wah underscore pod we're on instagram at wah pod and facebook at whiningaboutherstory and then please wherever you listen rate us five stars it'll take you two seconds and it's very helpful remember do it for my health do it for I Kelly's might be health. in surgery right when you're listening to this. Kelly is in surgery right now. They have her cut open. Quick, rate us five stars. <laughs> rate us five stars right now or the stitches won't take. Do it now. <laughs> Do it now. Clap if you believe in fairies. Clap if you believe in <laughs> Kelly's health. Rate us five stars if you believe in women's history. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.